Gone with the Wind is one of the highest grossing films of all time, based on one of the best-selling novels ever written. It's also, according to Sarah Churchwell in her new book, a story, quote, about enslavers busily pretending that slavery doesn't matter. Which, Churchwell adds, is pretty much the story of American history. The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells, provides a powerful critique of the book and film, an excoriating analysis of how it has shaped the way Americans understand their country, rewrite their history, and excuse their crimes. It also offers a decisive corrective to the pernicious portrayal of a genteel antebellum South, and draws a direct line from the negationist mythology of the lost cause, through the horrors of the 20th centuries on both sides of the Atlantic, right up to the attempted insurrection at the US Capitol on January the 6th, 2021. The Wrath to Come is a ferocious and important book, and I'm delighted to say that Sarah Churchwell joins me to discuss it today. Sarah, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you so much. Um, before we get into the book itself, I'd be curious to know about your first encounter with Gone with the Wind. Was it through the book? Was it through the film? And what sort of stage of your life were you mm. at? Um, yeah, it was actually really... So I, uh, it was the film, and I was very young. I think it was probably the first time that it was aired on American commercial television, mm -hmm. which was 1977. Right. Um, and, but I remember seeing it on television and, and just being enthralled by it. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I was little, I, I fell for the dresses and the love story and everything. I mean, I probably didn't understand most of it cause I was small, but so basically I don't have, I don't have a, a cultural memory that's pre-Gone with the Wind. Mm -hmm. It was always there as part of the popular culture that I was absorbing and had inherited. And um, and I loved it. And there mm -hmm. was a, a period in my life as a child, a few years after that, where I was really obsessed with it. Right. Um, and I played Barbie dolls. You know, I would dress up my Barbie to try <laughs> to look like Scarlet. I found, you know, tapestry fabric somewhere and tried to make it look like a hoop skirt. And um, and I, I would literally lay awake night after night after night replaying Rhett leaving Scarlet and mm -hmm. try to spin plots where they got back together. Right. Um, I actually was the child of divorce. And I think that in retrospect, I was probably triggered. <laughs> but I didn't <laughs> know. Obviously, as a 10 year old, I didn't know that. But um, and then and then I read the novel when I was a little bit older. Mm -hmm. So as a teenager um, and I didn't like it as much as I as the novel. Um, I talk about this a little bit in the book that um, that. Or maybe I, maybe maybe it's an earlier draft and it didn't make it into the file <laughs> copy of the book. But anyway, I, at some point I wrote about this. Um, but that um, uh, Margaret Mitchell is very explicit in the novel in ways that people who haven't read it probably would find surprising. Mm -hmm. That's uh, about Scarlett's limitations, and in particular that Scarlett's not very smart, and right. she's very explicit yeah, yeah. about that. Um, and I found that annoying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she isn't very smart. Uh, you know, she has the emotional intelligence of a gnat, as I definitely do say in the in the book. Um, and so even as a teenager, I found that frustrating. But then I eventually, um, you know, as I became a professor of American literature, I was very interested, I am very interested in um, popular fiction and popular culture. Mm -hmm. And so then I started teaching it. And when you teach a novel in a film, you then have a different relationship of to course. it. So I've always had it kind of in my head. And then... It's been it's been this story that has you know loomed very large in um, in the political culture of America you know in the years since Trump mm -hmm. um, took power and uh, and so it became clear and clear to me that that the that there was a lot going on and gone with the wind that was not being captured by that right. popular conversation that it was a pretty superficial take on mm -hmm. it and it was like well actually if you stop and think about this harder there's a lot more going on mm -hmm. and so that was going to be my next question about how the book came to be mm -hmm. because um in the i think it's in the acknowledgments you say that like you had this idea to write a book uh about gone with the wind and you expected it to be kind of a short relatively quick mm. uh, probably quite a popular book and just kind of <laughs> and kind of be done with it yeah um and then suddenly i had the feeling when I when I saw that this book was coming out, that Gone with the Wind had re-entered public consciousness, whether that be about, you know, like Trump's comment when Parasite won the uh, Best Picture Oscar or um, HBO, I think it was, deciding to take it off of their platform and then bring it back with, with a certain uh, context. So had you already started on the book before it sort of re-entered public mm. consciousness? And if so, how did that shape what the book became. Yeah, absolutely, I had. And so my previous book, which was called Behold America, um, which I also spoke to you about um, uh, back when we could do things in person. Um, and that was um, a history of the phrase America first, which mm -hmm. I wrote in the aftermath of Trump's um, election and inauguration. 
and that came out in 2018. And then I decided to do this book immediately after that mm. as as not really a follow up, although it ended up being much more of a follow up than I had initially envisioned it as, um, but still in the same political and cultural mm-hmm. space um, as talking about these legacies. And it was, you know, thinking about it in the wake of the Charleston shootings, mm-hmm. in the wake of the Charlottesville protests that killed Heather Heyer, the way that the Confederate flag kept coming up in the context of white supremacism. Um, and so I had originally thought of it yeah, as a kind of primer mm-hmm. that I would say, well, this if you want to understand the controversies around the Confederate flag and the controversies around the statues, Gone with the Wind is actually a really good way to do that. And then history kept and politics kept galloping mm. on and before me. And um, and Trumpism kept expanding. And even the, the example that you gave there about, you know, when HBO Max said that they would, um, yeah, they took it down from their streaming service to restore context, yeah. they said. And then, um, and they didn't, it's important that people know who haven't been following this debate, that HBO Max did not alter the film in any mm. way. They just added, uh, you know, a kind of warning note at the uh, you know, a, a trigger warning effectively at the at the front. And then they also added um, some extras that you could you can watch if you mm-hmm. want to to understand that history better panel discussions and that kind right. of thing, documentaries and stuff. So um, but it it caused a controversy because people heard censorship. They heard canceling um, and, you know, definitely some people in bad faith who knew perfectly well that it was going to be put back People up. acting in bad faith I in feel, recent years? I cannot imagine that. I feel like they might have been, you know. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, pretending that they thought it was being censored when they knew perfectly well that it wasn't kind of thing. Um, but that whole controversy was triggered by the murder of George Floyd. And mm. it was part of the Black Lives Matters protests of at the summer of 2020. So it's very much in that context. Mm. But then also when Trump refused to concede... Right. Um, and when he began this big lie that he had won the election, um, the it, it, that began to be spoken about by American historians and um, and cultural commentators, particularly in the U.S., as a new lost cause. Mm-hmm. So as a new version of revisionist history. And then they would keep mentioning Gone with the Wind as the most familiar way of talking about this whole complex mm-hmm. issue around revisionist history in the U.S. So, the, so I'd had this more... Uh, discrete and controlled mm. version of the story. But then eventually the politics and the history became so big that it became clear that in order to... So I'll give you just one example. As I was writing it in the aftermath of the insurrection, I mean, I basically had to rewrite it once the insurrection I happened. can imagine, yeah. Um, I rewrote a bunch of times, but then that was like, okay, start over again. <laughs> um, and um, But he Trump was charged with Ku Klux Klan Act. Well, not charged with, sorry, that's inaccurate. He has been sued under the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. Mm. And I realized that in order to explain why he was being sued under this uh, this law that was passed in 1871 and in, 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 in response to exactly the events that Gone with the Wind chronicles, that actually, again, Gone with the Wind is a way to explain mm. why Trump was being sued under this, for some people, obscure 1871 act. Mm. And what did the Ku Klux Klan Act have to do with Trump and with Gone with the Wind? And actually, all of it is contained within this story. Mm. So, you know, I had to keep, so basically, you know, I find myself explain, you know, was like, oh, I better go explain the Ku Klux Klan Act of uh-huh. 1871 because he's just been sued under it. So, yeah, you know, it's yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. There's in the book, I guess, one of the central tensions is, we might say, between history and myth. Mm. And I mean, that's very sort of broadly expressed by me there. But um, I find that really interesting because I think often people take the idea of a, the myth of a nation. It can be something very powerfully destructive, but it can also be something sometimes people consider a kind of powerful force for good. Mm. And one sense I got from the book is that kind of as a uh, professor of literature and as a historian, kind of you're done with that idea that a, that a national myth could be a force for good in a way. Like it's sort of, it is perhaps it's proven time and time again that it could, it's just such a destructive force and sort of obliterates history in a way that perhaps it would be healthy for us as a, sort of as a, as a species to move beyond that. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I mean, there are ways that we that we want to defend those kinds of mythologizing impulses because, yeah, they can be well-meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that they're always malicious. They're all, they often are well-meaning. But in practice, they end up being destructive because yeah. of unintended consequences. So even when they're trying to, to be a force for good... They, are they? I'm not mm-hmm. sure that they are. And then there are some like the lost cause, which was vicious in its intent, mm-hmm. um, purely self-serving from start to finish. And yet, be- or not yet, because it was 
so gratifying to so many people because it soothed so many frictions and so many um, it 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 um, uh, um, was consistent with so many Americans' sense of their own exceptionalist kind of permanent innocence mm-hmm. um, that it that it, it was just embraced uh, you know as a it was like you know it was another opiate of the masses uh-huh. it just made everybody happy um, and and I do think that cultural mythologies operate more often you know along those lines because they because if they're popular they tend to be gratifying yeah, yeah and we're seeing it now with the resurgence of well, not resurgence it's a new emergence mm-hmm. rather of um, of of self serving mythologized histories from. Um, other cultures in other countries, for example, you know, Japan is doing this series now defending their position in World War II mm-hmm. and justifying it. Right. Mm-hmm. And China has been doing these kind of popular series that justify their politics. Right. And, they, you know, they learned it from the United States. Nobody does it better than Hollywood. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's what the Western is. That's what, you know, all of these popular mythologies justifying what were often really, really mm-hmm. terrible acts and vicious acts. So. You know, can mythology be a force for good? Sure, it can be. Mm-hmm. But I think on average, it tends not to be. And um, and yeah, and I think it's dangerous for us to pretend that that the that the ledger comes out on the ro- on the right side, because I don't think it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You raised that idea of the sort of perennial innocence, the myth mm. of the perennial innocence of of America. And I think in some way that's connected to uh, this, I guess, sort of this strange representation. We do even in, in, in Britain and Europe, we think of we always talk about America as a young country. Mm. As well, and sort of this is, you know, I I just wonder what stage, how old America has to be to no longer be considered a young country. Yeah. But both when the, will we grow up? <laughs> well, also, also in a sense of like, it, it just sort of it shows how powerful these ideas and these these myths can be. That mm. even even sort of you know, in particularly post the you know the collapse of the Soviet Union, you have lots of countries which could have a legitimate claim to be properly young, properly mm. new countries. Mm. And yet the fact that America still seems to hold that, you mm. know, the torch of the sort of the young country, despite being founded, you know, several centuries ago now. Yeah. Yeah. It just sort of, I, for me, underlines the power of these. Yeah, these absolutely. Myths. And as you say, I mean, look, Israel is a much younger country. Right. right? Yeah. You know, but we don't talk about Israel as a young country. Uh-huh. I mean, not in, not in that global mythologizing way. You know, Israelis themselves may conceive of their country mm. in that way. But... Um, but yeah, the, and and because it, it does our thinking for us, mm-hmm. right? Those these received ideas that then we don't have to actually re-examine them, and um, and it comes with this interpretation baked into it. Mm-hmm. And as I say, for for Americans um, like me, that it, that that story is very very individually gratifying, mm-hmm. and it's culturally gratifying mm-hmm. because it it exactly because it perennially exempts us from the costs of our own history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's one point you make, which um, which I never considered before, but it's, it's really sort of undermined in a way my sense of uh, our understanding of history. And I'm gonna I'm gonna quote uh, from from the book here. You say that historians have often remarked that the American Civil War seems to provide an exception to the rule that victors write the history of wars, but perhaps that proposition is backwards. What if history is indeed always written by the victors, and therefore we should look to who wrote the histories if we want to know who really won a war? So the kind of the central contention there, which when I first read it, that sort of essentially the South won the war, seemed vaguely absurd. And then yet, as you show how the kind of the dynamics of uh, of essentially a, a, a slave owning state was transferred into the, the United States as we know it, became sort of depressingly less and less absurd as the book went on. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess thank you, um, <laughs> because because I guess I'm glad that I made the case per- you know, convincingly, but as you say, it's a depressing case to be, to find myself in the position of making. Um, but yeah, so there's a, there's a kind of, um, right before that passage, I know that there's a, there's a kind of truism that emerged in the, in the U.S., which is that the, the North won the war, but the South won the peace is how it's sometimes, um, put. And, and that's because the Southern version of civil war history became the dominant version of Mm -hmm. how the United States understood the civil war, despite the fact that the North had won, but the North won in the sense that, uh, slavery was abolished. Mm -hmm. But the North didn't go to, well, the, actually the North won in two ways. The North didn't go to war to keep, to, to abolish slavery. And that's a, a common misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. Again, one that I talk about in the book. Um, Lincoln wanted to abolish slavery by the time the war began, but he did not, his electorate was not behind him right. in that regard. And therefore he went to war to hold the country together. Mm. And he famously told Horace Greeley, who edited the Tr- New York Tribune, that um 
if he could hold the, the country together by abolishing slavery, he would abolish slavery. But if he could hold the country together by keeping slavery, he would keep slavery. Mm-hmm. And if he could hold the country together by having some slaves, slaves be free and some slaves be states be slave, then he would do that. Right. So he, he framed it in order to bring the electorate with mm-hmm. him as um, as a war to, and that's why they were the union, right? It, they were not the abolitionist right. army. They were yeah, the yeah. union army there to hold the country together. So the North won that. Mm-hmm. Um, they forcibly held the South in within the United States. Um, and eventually they did. It became clear that it was about abolishing mm-hmm. slavery. And, and as I say, Lincoln, as an individual historians have shown, did want to abolish slavery. He had already written the Emancipation Proclamation. He knew mm-hmm. what he was going to do. Um, but the um, but so so the North won those two propositions, but the South won the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's the part that we don't tell. And uh-huh. it's and that we don't square that circle. We don't stop and do the math and think to ourselves, well, that's odd because the North is supposed to is supposed to have won this. And yet the um, and yet all of these consequences of slavery all the way through Jim Crow and all of this stuff mm-hmm. stayed with us. And the North never had any objection to that, or at least not not as a not we're making big generalizations mm-hmm. here, obviously, because we're talking about about political movement. Mm-hmm. And big tranches of the population, and where the electorate falls. Obviously, there were individuals sure. um, who who saw this differently, um, white and black, north and south. Um, but the broad brush of how the American populace was voting and thinking and and um, and acting makes clear that um, that that they didn't feel they didn't they didn't register the cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. And and as I say in the book, that's largely because they were content to end slavery. Because they were because you could be a racist and believe that slavery was wrong. Right. So you can still be a white supremacist and just say slavery is immoral. Mm-hmm. But white people are superior to black people, and so it's fine for black people to live in this completely, you know, disenfranchised, completely, um, you know, fractional citizenship that mm-hmm. that they were, you know, allotted by um, by white Americans. And 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 today that might seem like cognitive dissonance, mm-hmm. but it isn't if you actually think that slavery is what is at issue, not racism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you get this kind of situation where you know, if we if we then acknowledge that the the South won, let's say, large parts of the war. They get to win the future. They get to set the direction the country goes on. And also, and particularly, I guess this is pertinent to Gone with the Wind, they get, they win the past in Mm -hmm. a way as well. They get to kind of shape and redefine and retell the the stories of the, uh, yeah, the antebellum South. Exactly. Exactly. In ways that, again, are deeply Mm self-justifying and and that completely rewrite the history of the Civil War pretty much from start to finish. So they they um, and and a lot of it was incredibly brazen in ways Mm -hmm. that people who haven't studied the history, you know, wouldn't predict. And, 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 you know, I think we'll find surprising, but that, you know, they stood up and they said the the Confederacy was founded on race based slavery. They called it African slavery. Mm -hmm. And they said we are seceding in order to protect our system of African slavery. And in order to expand it, they wanted mm-hmm. to expand it westward as well. It was a it was a military expansionist project, mm-hmm. um, and it was a colonizing project. They um, they they needed new land to expand because it's an agrarian economy. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they need more land to keep you know growing that economy. And they were determined that they would maintain slavery at the heart of it. And they said all of that. They said it's in the Articles of Secession for all right. of the states that they leave. It's in the Confederate. The, they, they wrote a Confederate Constitution. It's in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. They made speeches. Alexander. Stevens famously gives the cornerstone speech saying that the cornerstone of the Confederate states is white supremacism. Mm-hmm. And he uses that phrase like that's in so many words. Yeah. This is not an act of historical interpretation. They stand up and they say this society is based on the, you know, on the um, on the absolutely, uh, uh, you know, infallible rule that that God has made white people superior to black people and that black people should be enslaved. Indeed, he says in that speech that slavery is the natural state of black people. Mm-hmm. Um and then they lose the war and then they st- and then the same individuals, Alexander Stevens is still alive and Jefferson Davis is still alive. And they start writing histories in which they say, we didn't go to war for slavery. Yeah. We didn't go to war for white supremacism. So it's complete revisionist mm-hmm. history and propaganda and instantaneous. Mm-hmm. And they said they went to war to um, to fight off the northern aggressor, um, although the South seceded and that began the war. There was no northern invasion mm-hmm. of the South. That is not what happened. Um, they said that they went to war out of a revolutionary spirit to defend their um, their individual autonomy mm-hmm. um, against an oppressive overlord in the north, the yeah. way that the United States had had rebelled against uh, King George, 
So they wrote themselves as revolutionary inheritors. And then they also said that they went to war to protect states' rights, again, mm-hmm. in the same kind of framework, that it was about their individual democratic rights. Yeah. And there was this oppressive federal force that they were fighting off. And that was, um, and, and again, that was a very gratifying story for mm-hmm. Southerners because, and, and, and it's important for people to understand that the, that the North had a vested interest in this story as well, right. which may feel counterintuitive. But the country had to figure out how to reconcile. Uh, you have forced these people back in when they mm-hmm. wanted to leave and they don't want to be there. And you don't want to have an occupying force forever. So the Union Army was either going to have to stay there forever as an occupying force and try to and try to, you know, force the mm-hmm. hand of white Southerners. Um, and there was no appetite in the North yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah. They wanted to get on with things. And then Lincoln was assassinated and everything starts to unravel at that point. Mm-hmm. So basically, the Union Army just abandoned the South left the South to it, abandoned black people, um, abandoned all of the promises that they had made. So they emancipated 5 million black people and then said, you're on your own. Right. And they didn't give them education. They didn't give them land. They didn't give them, you know, any kind of route to employment or to, you know, political autonomy. And they said, good luck to you. And then mm-hmm. left them with their former enslavers. Yeah. 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 But the North had to justify that. They had to, they had to have a story that made that okay. Mm-hmm. And they had to have a story in which they could welcome these people back and not be like, well, actually you're totally immoral. So why am I forming uh-huh. a country with you? Yeah. Why are you allowed to take part in our government if you were insurrectionists, which many people were debating in the immediate aftermath of the war as Reconstruction mm-hmm. took on, uh, uh, you know, uh, took hold. So these were immediate and urgent questions that the nation never successfully resolved. Yeah. And this rewriting of the South as a benign place, which mm-hmm. came out of the original justifications of slavery in the first place. So it just evolved. These yeah, very yeah, old yeah. stories saying this is all great. This is fine. Mm-hmm. Slaves love it. We love it. This is all fabulous. Um, it just evolved into this was always a beautiful place. And then the, for the North, that was an easy story to accept. Mm-hmm. You go, oh, yeah, it was all fine. Yeah, it was all yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. So we don't have to be bothered either. And so the the great um, uh, African-American historian W.E.B. Du Bois mm-hmm. wrote in his 1935, you know, um, Black Reconstruction America, which came out the year before Gone with the Wind, um, is the first great work of African-American revisionist history. And he said that this story that the South told mm-hmm. um, was allowed to take hold in the country and it took over the whole nation because the South, um, the South uh, desperately wanted to defend its position mm-hmm. and the North didn't care about anything except making money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just on that subject of reconciliation, um, because one thing you, you point out in the book is that after the the attempted insurrection on January the 6th, within hours you had people uh, from the from the right, from the kind of Trumpist side, start talking about kind of, oh, we have to unify, we have to come together. And when you see that as contemporaneously, you realize what sort of hokum it is and sort of and how it's done in such bad faith and it's done to sort of essentially protect themselves. Do you think there was another route to reconciliation between the North and the South that was, I guess, healthier than the the option they took of allowing the South their story? Or was it a, a kind of a Hobson's choice between separation or this kind of perverse reconciliation that denied Mm. the horrors of slavery? It's a really good question. And, you know, there's no obvious route. Mm -hmm. Again, the the assassination of Lincoln, it it just changed everything. Mm -hmm. And so it's very hard to do that counterfactual of what might have happened if Lincoln had still been there and Mm -hmm. and what kinds of, um, yeah, what what kinds of um, uh, um, accommodations would the South have been forced to make mm-hmm. with the radical abolitionists in the North. They lost a lot of power when Andrew Johnson was, um, you know, became president. And so, well, they didn't lose power, but they found that they they were having to, to infight mm-hmm. in a way that they wouldn't have um, if, if Lincoln had been, um, you know, helping build that abolitionist cause. So... Um, you know, do I do I know what that route to reconciliation would have been? No, I mm. don't. Um, it would certainly have been difficult, and it's not clear that there was, as I say, there's no obvious answer. But I I, I think we ended up with the worst mm-hmm. possible option out of the realistic ones that were there. And as I say, the 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 real issue was that having emancipated the slaves, we then they, we then abandoned the nation. I mean, mm. we in that sense. Um, abandoned African-Americans to their fate. And there were other options other than doing that mm-hmm. and forcing the hand of Southerners in different ways. But yes, but it but it certainly for a long time would have required an occupying army. And so, you know, that would have continued to, uh, um, you know, foster these grievances sure. and, yeah, and yeah. to, you know, so, I mean... Uh, I don't 
I don't think that anybody it, it's it's a it is a it's a really complex and interesting question mm-hmm. of what might have been the root. But when you look at what some of the so-called radical abolitionists mm-hmm. at the time were urging, it looks a lot like progressivism today. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's another way of answering the question, which is that it's it's you know it's a it's a, the story I have to tell in this book is is not there isn't a lot. Um, that as an American, I can take pride in. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the aspects of the story that that I do take pride in and that I kind of love is that, and I think we don't stop and think about enough, is that the United States tried to do something really quite remarkable, which is to go from race-based slavery to full multiracial democracy mm-hmm. in the space of five or 10 years. Right. That's amazing. Yeah, it failed spectacularly for the reasons we've been saying. Sure. But I kind of love that they tried it. Uh-huh. So the fact that it all went wrong... Um, is you know there there is a there is a kind of nobility in the mm. in the failure there um, because they just thought well let's just go for it yeah, we're yeah. going to force people who have enslaved people on the basis of their race to f- accept them as their equals mm-hmm. and it didn't work but you know God bless them for trying yeah, yeah yeah I mean maybe part of the reason it didn't work was because they didn't tell the story they didn't develop the myth in the way that the um, the, the the former slavers were able to do as you you explained earlier and that's kind of what I'd like to come on to now is this idea like you talked about the cornerstone speech like the the reasons for the civil war were documented there are there are speeches it is very clear that the foundation of these you know these states are slaveholding states and yet with the help of let's say works of art like gone with the wind which focused not on the sort of the the systemic problem, but on essentially one family, one estate, one one city, or well, you know, quite well, quite limited a view of one city. They're able to completely uh, reshape the way we we think about this history and almost sort of obscure the the fact. Does that, in a way, for you, make Gone with the Wind novel and film great works of art, or are they more? great works of propaganda Mm, yeah no i don't think they're great works of art i mean i think that the film is a is a better work of art than the novel Uh um it has it has technical aspects that remain particularly for 1939 that remain really quite amazing Mm. and i think it's an incredibly successful piece of 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 a certain type of classic Hollywood cinema. And it's kind of the apotheosis of that, of that kind of filmmaking. Um, And for those of us who were affected by it, once it gets into your head, it's very hard to get Mm -hmm. it out again. And I still find it moving. Um, And, um, and, and just kind of, you know, epic and overwhelming Mm -hmm. and it, and it, and it does all of those things. The novel is, um, I mean, look, Margaret Mitchell was a journalist. um, So she knew how to write. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the, one of the, one of its, aesthetic virtues that I find that almost nobody ever talks about is that it's funny yeah and it's deliberately funny she has a very mordant acidic sense of humor and um and so she has has this kind of sarcastic narrator um who's always you know kind of mocking Scarlet in ways that are often very amusing and um and and she and Rhett is funny Mm -hmm. and witty and so there is um uh there, there are many things to enjoy about the novel um despite its very obvious drawbacks but I don't think it's a great work of art. No, mm. I do think it's an unbelievably successful piece of propaganda. Mm. She didn't set out to write propaganda. Yeah, yeah. Um, she thought that she was writing a more accurate version of Southern history, but she didn't bother to um, to to reconsider any of her prejudices. Mm. She didn't question any of her assumptions, which was the problem. So, in that case, would you say that the Gone with the Wind and Margaret Mitchell were more a sort of a symptom of something than a cause of something, or both? Both. So, you know, you you said at the beginning that, you know, if we talk about these broad brush differences between myth and history Mm. and and what I would say about that novel is that it's a novel that feeds history into it. Mm. And but it's it feeds this actually this mix of myth and history into the story that it wants to tell and then puts out what purports to be history, Mm. but is actually mostly myth. So it's what happens when history goes into the it's like almost like a machine or a feedback loop or something when history comes in and myth Mm. gets gets you know emerges right um and and so she she um she is absolutely symptomatic of that problem Mm -hmm. but she perpetuated it hugely because of the popularity of the novel 
Okay. And internationally perpetuated this, this yeah, view yeah, of yeah. America, not just to Americans. I mean, it's, it was hugely globally popular mm-hmm. in the second half of the 20th century. And I must confess, I haven't read the, the novel. I, I saw the film many mm. years ago now. Um, when, when you're reading, because obviously as a professor of American literature, you, you, you know that you can read a book about bad people and even be kind of encased in those people's worldview which doesn't necessarily make it, and these are all very loaded terms, but like a, a morally reprehensible mm. book. So I think of a relatively modern alternative, although whether this one's morally reprehensible, some people might discuss something like American Psycho, mm. right? Which is sort of like you, you live with Patrick Bateman, mm. and yet I don't think Ellis is necessarily wanting you to sort of become Patrick, become Bateman. <laughs> Patrick Bateman or ascribe to his worldview. So is there an argument that could be made that sort of Margaret Mitchell is presenting a world as it was lived and as it was understood by people who were by the real life Scarlett O'Hara's mm. and therefore in in a sense the sort of the the book is not necessarily sort of uh, reprehensible in itself but mm. showing a reprehensible situation mm. or is there something that makes it sort of inherently repre- reprehensible beyond the the characters and the situation it yes, presents. Yes, um, the latter. And, uh-huh. and the reason for that is that, so absolutely, as you say, there are certainly books about bad people that are not themselves, that, then that's the point of the mm-hmm. book, is that these yeah. are about bad people. Um, and and that's what most great literature does, is, you know, plumb the heart of darkness, right? right? Yeah. So, um, and that's what you're trying to do. But that's not what Margaret Mitchell was trying to do. So what she had, so she, she was to the extent that she saw Scarlet as an anti-heroine. So she definitely sees Scarlet as a cautionary tale mm. for the nation. At, well, not that's, that's overstating it, but she sees Scarlet as a problematic character, but an interesting one mm. who she saw as representative of a certain kind of Southern woman right. who she definitely criticized. She definitely, as, as I said, she's quite outspoken in the novel about, Charlotte, uh, about Scarlet's short, shortcomings um, and her liabilities, her character flaws. And she wrote letters saying, um, you know, I haven't found it amusing when when Americans wanted to take her up as some kind of heroine. I think mm-hmm. it speaks very badly for the moral character of the nation. Yeah. Right? So if she were also ironizing Scarlett's worldview, I would completely agree with you. Right. And if she were ironizing her society in the same way, but she's not. Mm-hmm. And it is a novel that has a moral touchstone and that moral touchstone is Rhett Butler. Uh-huh. And he tends to speak the truth of the novel. Uh-huh. And he is... Somebody who won't join the clan, mm-hmm. but he won't join the clan not because he thinks it's morally objectionable, but because he's too much of a rogue to join a club. Right. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> and so he's not a joiner because mm-hmm. um, he's a renegade. But he upholds all of the all of the worldview of mm-hmm. the clan, and indeed, in the very famous scene that anybody who's ever seen the film or heard of the film will know, it's kind of one of the two most famous scenes um, when Scarlett goes to visit Rhett in jail wearing the green velvet dress mm-hmm. made from her mother's curtains. He's in jail because he lynched a black man. Yeah. And people often think that he's a prisoner of war of the Yankees, but he's there because he lynched a black man. And he lynched the black man, he says, because he was uppity to a lady. Mm-hmm. So Rhett is a lyncher mm-hmm. and he is the hero. And he's he's sort of an anti-hero, but not really. And he's so he's the he, he's the one who te- he's the truth teller mm-hmm. about their world. And he is also somebody who has been enriched by slavery, but thinks that slavery doesn't matter. Uh-huh. They all think that slavery is fine. Mm. It is a book that thinks that slavery is fine. And it is a book that believes, for instance, that the Klan was formed in order to protect women. Mm-hmm. That is documentedly, demonstrably untrue mm-hmm. and, and in ways that were available to Margaret Mitchell to discover if she had troubled herself to do so. Yeah. But she wrote letters at the time saying she didn't do any research into the Klan at all because everybody knew the truth about the Klan. So she was completely happy to Mm. accept all of these cultural myths and received wisdoms. And so she perpetuated them. Um, So, no, she's not criticizing that worldview. Mm. Um, She she absolutely sees the North as the enemy. It is a novel that thinks that Lincoln is the bad guy. Right. And it treats Lincoln as the bad guy. Now, we don't have to be sentimental in our discussion about this. I mean, I've I've suggested that I think that, you know, Lincoln was a good president and that we would have been better off as a country if he hadn't been assassinated, which I don't think is a particularly (laughs) um, (laughs) radical position to take. Um, But we don't have to be sentimental and say that, you know, we can certainly problematize Lincoln and talk, mm. you know, we don't have to say that there's any president who's, you know, a hero or whatever. Sure. But um, but if you're on the side of history that think Link, thinks Lincoln is the bad guy, uh-huh. 
I feel like you're on the wrong side of history. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and it's a novel, I, I talk about this in the book too, it's a novel in which um, all of the characters in it burn with resentment at seeing mm. the United States flag flying in, uh, in Atlanta. They hate the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. They are Americans who hate the U.S. government. And, and I think that that's an important aspect of the story for us to stop mm-hmm. and think about. And no, it's not something that the novel ironizes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's so strange, isn't it? Because it's, there are so many things, as you just outlined there, which are so stark and in, in no way hidden or buried or kind of subtext in the novel. They are explicit. The film. Yeah. They are explicit. And yet this is one of the most beloved <laughs> stories of the, of the 20th century. Now, you, you say something which I found really fascinating. And again, I'm going to quote it here. You say most best-selling stories are unstable emotionally, so their audiences can have it both ways. That is, their pleasure and their consolation. And that seemed to me to get to something uh, about how this film can be so explicitly on what I think most of our listeners would probably consider the wrong side of history, and yet also be so beloved at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Because it it lets you... it. it it gives you the opportunity to not examine any of this. Mm. It, 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 in a sense, it, it's a, it's a huge exercise in sleight of hand and in distraction. So it lets you pretend that you're thinking about slavery without ever talking about slavery uh-huh. and without ever asking you to think about slavery. So it, it makes absolutely no demands on you, and it, and it tells you a story that you find gratifying while pretending that it's telling you the truth. Mm. So you're, you're, you're swallowing a fairy tale that, that tells you that you're the good guy. And you and and then it and and it and it works hard to to um, to distract you, as mm-hmm. I say, and to dissuade you from asking any tougher questions. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's what I mean by saying it's a pleasure and a consolation that that you can that you, that you know you can read this thousand page novel about slavery and never think about slavery, yeah. which is really kind of extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but but that's what we all do because it because it 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 that's precisely what it's what it's there for. Mm-hmm. And and for you, is it sort of, can the, the film and the novel be more or less mapped onto each other from a kind of a moral point of view and for, for example, the presentation of Scarlet? I mean, the reason, it put me in mind of uh, an interview I did a few months ago with the writer John Higgs, who'd written a book about James Bond and the Beatles. Mm. And one thing about the Bond mythology is the sort of the way that the character of Bond, obviously over successive films, diverges from Fleming's original sort of very violent, very misogynist uh, character into something someone perhaps still misogynist and still violent but in a but but in different ways and increasingly less so over the years for you other other the film and the book essentially yeah can they just be mapped onto each other in that respect um to to in some to some degree mm-hmm. but there are divergences that are important and um and and there are a couple of reasons for those um so the the great extent to which they can be treated as kind of equivalent texts is uh, com- comes from the fact that David Selznick, who, who produced it, the film, um, insisted that the screenplay uh, ha- had to be, fa- it had to condense the novel, mm. but it had to be faithful to the novel. And um, F. Scott Fitzgerald was one of the writers who worked on the screenplay only for about 10 days, didn't work out. Um, <laughs> but he wrote to his editor afterwards saying that, and he found it totally absurd, that Selznick's insistence on their using only the language of the novel meant that Scott Fitzgerald had to flip through the novel mm. looking for words that that Mitchell used. He said as if it were scripture, yeah, yeah. so that he could so that he could justify mm. creating a piece of dialogue, right? So there was this extreme fidelity to the text. Well, if you have that extreme fidelity, then it's going to be mapped mm. onto it, right? So he's not rethinking its politics. He's not rethinking its worldview. However, two things happened that that forced a, a, a change. One is casting black actors. Mm-hmm. And as it happens, great black actors, because Selznick was ambitious for the film. And so, you know, in particular, casting Hattie McDaniel as Mammy changed everything. Because Mammy in the novel is, um, for those who only know the film, will be surprised that Mammy has much less presence in the novel. Um, she's uh, she's a plot function more than mm-hmm. anything else. And she um, she's not humanized. She's not a rounded character the way that Hattie McDaniel makes her. Selznick agreed to give Hattie McDaniel more time on screen, mm-hmm. and to expand the character. And it was part of a debate about the racism of the characters because it's important for people to recognize that this conversation that we're having about the racism of the depiction of these characters is not an anachronistic 21st century right. yeah, yeah. point of view that we are bringing to bear on it. Black people in 1936, and, and when the novel came out, 
up through the production of the film. It went, came out at the end of 1939 and then went um, around the country through 1940, vociferously objected to mm-hmm. it on exactly these grounds. They objected to its use of the N-word because the N-word accompanies violence. They mm-hmm. objected to that. They were very, very clear about what, why they thought it was dangerous, why they thought it was vicious, why they thought it shouldn't be filmed, that Hollywood should not be making a blockbuster out of this story that was an apology for slavery. Mm-hmm. And um, and so and they also criticized the black cast for taking part in it. Hattie McDaniel famously said that she had a choice between being paid seven hundred dollars a week to play a maid or seven dollars a week to be a maid. Mm -hmm. And she decided to play a maid. Um, And then, of course, she became the first African-American actor to win an Academy Award for Mm -hmm. this role. What that means is that because she gives this absolutely amazing performance in it that is now, I think, for many people watching the film, A, one of its saving graces, mm-hmm. and B, um, she becomes the moral heart of the film. Um, and she's and she's very, she is, so she is ironizing the character mm-hmm. and the story in the way that Mitchell is not uh, in the novel. Um, and, but she makes Mammy a human being. Mm-hmm. So that means it diverges strongly from mm. the novel in terms of its moral roundedness. Can I just ask about that? Because again, it's been several years since I've seen the film. Does she do that through the, both through the way the character is written and the way she performs it? Or is she sort of essentially subverting the character as written through her performance? Um, mostly the latter. She's mm. mostly subverting the character. But but because Selznick allowed her, he, she's, she's allowed comedy that is where she's not the butt of the joke but she's right. generating the joke um and um and and so she's this kind of i don't want to overstate it but she almost works like a kind of greek chorus you know mm-hmm. she's kind of commenting on the epic action in the sardonic way yeah. as the story goes on but she also has a heart and she's mm-hmm. the only one who can tell the truth to scarlet and red about their feelings so she um and and then when the part calls for her to be a minstrel Hattie McDaniel undercuts it, right. so she subverts it. So it is, um, it's a, it's, it's just, a, it's an incredibly complex and and um, effective performance, mm-hmm. um, and so that pulls the the moral center of the film. It, even for, for people who watch it today and find it unbelievably racist, what I would say is try reading the novel because uh-huh. you won't believe how much more racist the novel is, and the degree to which the 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 film actually mitigates that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the other um, answer to the question of, of how it is, um, where, where it diverges and they just can't be mapped onto each other, is also that Selznick was Jewish. Mm-hmm. And he was the, um, the son of, um, uh, of immigrants from what is now Lithuania. And he was very conscious of the fact, and I, I talk about this at some length at the end of the book, because I think it's incredibly important. The 1930s context into which Gone with the Wind emerges is usually understood in terms of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And it's never really been talked about since the book came out in terms of interwar fascism. Right. But it actually is very much a story about interwar fascism mm-hmm. as well. The rise, of course, in Europe, but also in the United States. And um, Selznick was very conscious of that. And he wrote memos and letters and he discussed it, saying that he didn't want Gone with the Wind to give mm-hmm. people permission to be fascist. Mm-hmm. And he was very clear about the ways in which it's raised the racism of the story and this, particularly the, the plot line around the Klan might also, he said, give permission to the fascists of our times. Mm-hmm. And so he worked hard to pull back from that. So in those two ways, the, the film um, manages to create a, 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 a more... Um, a less objectionable moral universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although we've mentioned the phrase lost cause quite mm. a bit <laughs> during mm. this conversation. And it feels when you're working with that source material, I mean, you can pull back to an extent, but... But it is indeed a lost cause. And as I say, if you're going to be incredibly faithful to it, if unless you're going to rethink its fundamental perspective on the world, mm-hmm. then there's only so much tinkering you can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to come to, um, to that idea, actually, of the... Um, of what sort of the, the the context in which the film was, uh, the book was written and the film was made. And so as it's also kind of what therefore the, um, we could say that the story endorses mm. in some way, like because no no work of art can be completely separated from the, the historical context in which it's made. And as you said, that is, uh, it was made at a time that European fascism was on the rise. Um let me rephrase that. <laughs> it, it, it becomes clear from uh, from the book that you think it's an unequivocal endorsement of white supremacism. And essentially, if 
the white supremacism being presented is not identical to European fascism at the time is enough of a corollary that we don't really need to make the difference. Yeah, I think it's a distinction without a difference. Absolutely. And um, the 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 way that we so the, the subtitle of the book is Gone with the Wind and the Lies America Tells. Mm-hmm. And that's not just a set of lies about the Civil War and its aftermath and slavery. Mm-hmm. That's also a set of lies about American fascism mm-hmm. and the history of American fascism, which we've suppressed which I've been working on uncovering um, since my previous book, is, which does some of that too. Um, and there are others doing that, of course, involved in that project. But some of us have been actually, you know, who work in the 20s and 30s have been working to surface that, um, those debates and, and, um, and those histories. The, it's also important for listeners who, who haven't studied this to realize that, that there was an enormous amount of traffic between mm-hmm. um, American... Uh, white supremacist and nativist anti-Semitic circles and Nazi Germany in mm-hmm. particular, but also some um, b- between them and Mussolini as well right. to, to a more limited extent. But certainly, um, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, history showing how, you know, Hitler based the Nuremberg race laws on American race laws. He did that because he thought it would make them more legitimate. Mm-hmm. They actually thought American race laws were too extreme, which was why they went for um, one grandparent who was Jewish, of mm-hmm. course, being the basis for the Nuremberg race laws. The U.S. race laws are one known ancestor who is African mm-hmm. makes you black legally. Mm-hmm under what was known as the one drop rule of the law of hypo descent. Um, so, you know, you're, you're at a point where the Nazis are like, ah, oh, that's a bit extreme, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, but America does, we don't think about ourselves in that uh. way, right? But we need to. And Henry Ford, the traffic between Henry Ford and Hitler is well documented. A man called Madison Grant, who's actually, is an American who actually is the person who coined the phrase master race. That's not mm-hmm. a Hitler coinage. It's an American coinage. Hitler adopted it from an American cultural conversation, right? So that whole eugenicist, nativist, mm-hmm. white supremacist culture um so the, the all of that is well established but by historians but it's not part of our popular memory it's mm-hmm. still not the way that we talk about or think about the united states and there are still people denying that there was a meaningful history of american fascism mm-hmm. um they say no it's just white supremacism um and part of what i'm trying to do in the in the kind of final third of the book is to say um not only is is that not true but when you, the more you dig into it, the more you realize that this is fundamentally fascistic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it, it gets complicated because at the time, people like Mitchell and white Southerners like her did not support Hitler. Mm-hmm. So that's important to say. So they were not supporters of European fascism. But but that's because they they thought that they had created this happy society mm-hmm. They had a hair invoked democracy. They just thought it was working and mm. it was fine for them. So because so they thought it was all they were like, well, we're not fascist because mm. we don't have to engage in genocide. But it was like, but actually, all you've done is create a structure in which black people mm. are not full citizens. And if they were in your government, would you be killing mm. them? Because you did in the 1870s. Yes. So would you be murdering them in cold blood again if they tried to enter government? Mm. I have a feeling you might be. And mm. then we would be looking at something else. So. The, one of the things that I do in the book is say, well, let's look at how we understand European fascism. And then let's look at what these groups did and said and believed in the United States at the same time. And, oh, look, it looks an awful lot like fascism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, I mean, the sort of the, the thought experiment that it set me off on was because, as we, we talked about just before recording, that sort of Gone with the Wind is essentially ha- the halfway historical point between the Civil War and today. And so the, let's say, the exercise, if we could describe it like that, that Margaret Mitchell was undertaking, could almost be the equivalent today of a German writer rewriting the the stories of the, the concentration camps and, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the Holocaust, essentially, presenting it as a kind of a, a gentil kind of German, uh, sort of a, ha- a happy situation yeah. for everyone involved. And, it's exactly and that. It feels completely absurd. It's, but it's exactly <laughs> what Gone with the Wind does. And I, and I do talk about that at the end of the book and using exactly that analogy. It is the equivalent of a novel. So what we're supposed to do is, we're, so, so why people love the novel and the story, and it's important to give credit you know, to to the the legitimate things that people love about it. It's not all immoral. And if people love Gone with the Wind, it's not necessarily for immoral reasons, right? But the um, but then they turn a blind eye to the immorality mm-hmm. in the story in order to love the parts that they love. 
the parts that everybody responds to is the fact that Scarlet is a survivor. It's a story mm. about human resilience. It's a story about human defiance. It's a story, and it's wonderful from the point of view of a woman to have a story about a woman who survives right. and, yeah. and every woman who is who is a universalized character. Um, so there are lots of things that are appealing in that. And the and so the sense that Scarlet's survival and her and her, you know, determination, she will not be beaten no matter what. And that's what we love about her. But then we have to stop and think about the fact that this is the equivalent exactly mm-hmm. of loving a novel about a Nazi who refuses to be beaten down mm-hmm. after the war is lost but who never rethinks whether fascism might have been wrong, mm-hmm. who's determined to defend fascism to the death, and we're admiring his human resolve mm-hmm. and his resilience because he will not be defeated. Well, actually, he should have been defeated. Mm-hmm. He was a Nazi. Mm-hmm. She should have been defeated. She was an enslaver and a white supremacist. And that's precisely the problem. This, you know, we, we have in the United States, we have a heritage industry in which, you know, people go to southern plantations for their weddings and they dress up in hoop skirts. Mm-hmm. Right? And it is the equivalent of getting married at Auschwitz uh-huh. in a Nazi costume. And, and, and people get angry when you say that, but it's true. Mm-hmm. And people get angry because they're invested, and it's back to that point about innocence and mm-hmm. what we find gratifying. People get angry because it threatens their sense of their own innocence, and mm-hmm. it says you don't get to do what you want to do. Uh-huh. And there is a cost to this, and they don't want to hear that, mm-hmm. but it is true. Yeah, It remains true. On the subject of what people don't want to hear or don't want to be confronted with, one of, I think, the most important elements of the, the book, and also one of the most harrowing, is, as I say, it provides a corrective to the the inherited story that Gone with the Wind provides. And but in order to do that, you have to write extensively about lynching mm-hmm. and the sheer sort of horrific violence inflicted on black people from the time of slavery up to well, up to up to, up today, to now. Really. Yeah. <laughs> and I can I, I'll, I'll be very intrigued. Well, I know the book isn't yet out in in the United States, and I'll be very intrigued to see how that goes down mm. in a way. Because I think it's it's one thing to uh, to sort of philosophically accept the idea that it was an incredibly violent time, but to be presented with the details of the 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 the, the, the intricate details of the crimes is something. I, I can imagine people will have quite a reaction to it. Yeah, people aren't going to like it. <laughs> um, I think it's safe to say this book is not going to be a bestseller in the US. Uh, it's not going to make people happy at Christmas time. Um, I mean, and, you know, and, and, and because of the, the atrocities that I, that I detail, um, you know, the book has a trigger warning for, mm-hmm. that, for that reason. Um, and, you know, it, it, was, it was something that I found incredibly difficult mm-hmm. to do. I mean, it was it was it's painful to read. It's painful to read the first time that you read the the primary historical sources, mm-hmm. um, and to realize, as you say, the extent of the brutality, the savagery, um, and the words like lynching become almost a euphemism. Yeah. And and again, it's something that lets us pretend that we're talking about it without actually talking mm-hmm. about it. We can pretend we're talking about slavery without talking about its atrocities. Um, and when you get into what they did to other human beings, then you start to realize what it is mm-hmm. that we're talking about. And um, the, you know, the the m- mutilation of people, um, uh, forcing people, you know, forcing a man to choose between castrating himself and being burned alive, for example, mm-hmm. to give just one example. And these come from the documentary sources in 1871. These are firsthand testimony that was um, uh, given before Congress, pregnant women who were brutally murdered. Um, and their unborn children murdered, right? Um, and and people have to understand that that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about that the the vision that people have from like To Kill a Mockingbird mm-hmm. of oh, by the way another book that makes me really angry mm. um, for exactly this reason, right? Because that's that's a book that tells us that lynching is something that happens furtively. Um, a few men mm. come with a rope to get one man out of jail. They're going to hang him. And that they can be talked down by a six-year-old girl uh-huh. who just says, oh, I don't think you should do that. And they shamefacedly go home. That is not what mm. happened. What happened was that people like Atticus Finch took their six-year-old girl to watch the mm. lynching and said to them, you're going to see your first lynching. Watch yeah, this yeah. black man burn. That's what happened, right? And so it makes me angry because the lie is is so vicious. Mm-hmm. Um to pretend that all of this is being redeemed by innocent American characters. But if we just talk about lynching in general terms, we don't know what yeah, it is that yeah, we're yeah. talking about. And so I felt really strongly when I started reading the first Klan report, which is the 1871 congressional testimony that, that I'm referring to, um, 
there's 10,000 pages mm -hmm. of, of congressional testimony there. And I, and I, and I didn't read all of it. I couldn't, um, but I read all of Georgia and, um, and it's horrific. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, you know, people don't, unless you're, unless you are a scholar of American history, you do, they all know mm -hmm. this, but, um, but it's, again, it's not part of popular mm -hmm. memory. And that's really what I want this book to do is to say, we, you know, international popular memory about the United States is deeply, deeply, mm -hmm. deeply inaccurate and Gone with the Wind had a lot to do with that. Here's what really happened. Yeah, and yeah. so there's a, there's a kind of separating fact from fiction mm -hmm. aspect to the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one, one thing that just as I guess a relatively small detail in, in the grand scheme of things, but which shocked me sort of additionally, in addition to the, the, uh, the details of the atrocity was how they were advertised in advance. Mm. So it's not only that, you know, not only a, a, an angry mob going and, you know, perf performing these these disgusting acts, but in fact, you have newspaper headlines saying, man will be burned at stake here, allowing people, like, it's not, it's you know, not saying this was it would be any sort of justification, <laughs> but like, it's not a burst of emotion from an angry mob. It is planned, it is systematised, it's premeditated. Absolutely. And as you say, an advertised and... They would say they, they commissioned special trains. Yeah, they would put trains on so that two thousand people could go watch a lynching. Mm -hmm. um, they and yeah, and they would have bulletins and flyers and 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 so of course, therefore, by definition, the police also mm -hmm. know about it. Often were there. Many lynchings were performed in front of courthouses or police stations, um, with the you know officers of the law taking part. Mm -hmm. um, and and again, that's part of the it's it's part of the way that we have to understand the story is that lynching was um, it was constantly justified mm -hmm. and um, and it was considered extra legal. That was what mm -hmm. they didn't say it was illegal. They said it was extra legal. And we are seeing the same terms being used to justify right wing violence mm -hmm. today when Tucker Carlson says that Kyle Rittenhouse crossed state lines right. with a gun to kill Black Lives Matter protesters because what is our country coming to if a 17-year-old with a gun has to do what the police refuse to do, mm -hmm. right? So justifying vigilante violence, justifying taking it into your own hands, saying this is how law and order is maintained when, of course, it is anything but law and order. It is precisely the justification of vigilante violence. Mm -hmm. Um I'd like to, there's so much more I'd like to talk about, but um, we are running out of time and there's a couple of things I really did want to talk about. One which you actually deal with in the introduction um, is the subject of language mm. in the book. And it's very clear from the beginning that obviously when you're dealing with the source material you're dealing with here, you are going to be dealing with a lot of very offensive, very inflammatory words. And the the choice you make, uh, particularly in, in association with the N-word, which is to have to write it as when it does appear in a text as N, a series of X's, and then and an R, just to sort of to show the word without writing the word. Um, could you just talk a little bit about the sort of the extent of the reflection and the importance of that to you when beginning work mm. on this book? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was something that I that I thought long and hard about, and I don't know that it's a wonderful solution, but it was the it was the best solution that I could come up with. And the um, and it seemed to me that the, one of the reasons for doing it is people say, well, why don't you just use the N word? And the reason I don't just use the N word, first of all, I personally think it's quite cumbersome. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, trying to write a book that I thought was, you know, could be elegant, even despite the the brutality of the subject matter. But but also because um, the N-word as a phrase was already in existence mm. by the 1930s. And so mm. it's part of the debate about whether to use that word um, in the film of Gone with the Wind. And there was, as I said, this vociferous debate about that. So I wanted to be able to capture the different ways in which people talked in, in encoded ways about this word mm. so that we could register the different way, the, 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 the different methods of resistance. And to, to understand from the 1930s point of view, from African-Americans point of view, what they thought was objectionable about the word and when they used it and when they didn't use it and under what terms. I also think it's just interesting the, the evolution of taboo mm -hmm. in terms of our use of language. Because, you know, one of the things that I found was that if you if you read antebellum newspapers, you see very quickly that for them, the rudest word was blaspheming. So mm -hmm. they would redact words like infernal. Right. And they would spell that I dash dash F dash dash L. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but they would spell the N word in full. Mm -hmm. So you'll see a phrase that says, you know, somebody's infernal N word, but mm -hmm. in, it's infernal that gets redacted. Right. Yeah. And the racist slur is printed in full. Right. Now. As, as a cultural historian, I think understanding our language in those ways is, is important and interesting and, and enlightening. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I thought, if I just start using the N-word, you're just going to get hopelessly confused right, about whether yeah. it's being used in the text or not. So I needed some way to show that it's being used in the text in its in its entirety. But um, it is simply the case that as a white woman today, I may not use that word, mm-hmm. um, even if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And, the, um, and, and that is because, um, as I also say in the book, um, because people who are harmed by language are the ones who are in the best position to say whether it should mm-hmm. be used or not. And I don't believe that I have the right to adjudicate whether that word should be used or not. Mm -hmm. So um, many, many black people are telling us at the top of their voices that using that word does act of harm. And therefore, I think we have to take that seriously. Mm -hmm. So so as I say, this was the kind of best solution I could come up with. I've just done the audiobook recording for it. And it presented a problem that I hadn't thought about. Um, Because you can't say NXXXR. Mm And so we actually, you know, had quite a conversation about that. And I've ended up using i think they haven't edited out as far as i know it's the final decision um pronouncing it enter so that you get half and half you get the n-word but so that you can hear that it's there again without my saying the word Mm -hmm. and um i found partly because when we talked about the options one was that i could say it and then they could bleep it Mm -hmm. and i and i I said well first of all that would just sound like i'm saying it like i'm comfortable saying it and you're bleeping me (laughs) like and she's fine with it but we object you know and i was like well that's not gonna gonna work but also if i couldn't do it yeah like i couldn't say it Mm -hmm. just couldn't do it and so, um, you know, uh, it was just way too uncomfortable. And um, and so, yeah, so, th- so that was the solution that we ended up with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, these conversations around um, language and historical documents is, mm-hmm. is, is a complex one. And I think all we can do is just try to think through it as yeah. fully as we can, explain our reasons, and then hope people think that we made good decisions. Yeah. And just to, uh, to finish these, so the book is, I said, is framed very much by January the 6th mm. and the events of, of January the 6th. Um, and you also project forward to when it was written, the elections, the midterms, which we've just mm. seen. And then, of course, the 2024 um, election. Do you see any seed of hope in what happened? Because I know, obviously, people's ex- expectations were confounded to a certain extent, both concerning the results, but also concerning the amount of election denial that was uh, that was expected and that would actually thus far has uh, has come to pass. Is this kind of <laughs> sort of just the waves retreating before the next big mm. splash? Do you think, or do, do you sense some sort of um, I don't know some some sort of some sort of deep societal reaction against what what took place a year and a couple of years ago? I think that there is a growing reaction against it. I think that the the attempt to brazen it out. Um, which lasted much longer than any of us thought it could or, you know, just so that has continued to confound all of us Mm -hmm. and it may continue to happen. Um, But it does seem to be it does seem to be failing. Mm -hmm. And because it was purely pragmatic power grab, if it works, they'll do it. If it doesn't work, they won't do it. Right. If you can get away with election denialism, that's what you'll do. Mm -hmm. And but, you know, as soon as it stops working, you're going to, you know, find different tactics. So, yes, I think that what we are seeing is that um, I do think Donald Trump is a spent force politically. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, he's ricocheting around like a, you know, like a like a spent bullet. But he, (laughs) you know, he's still dangerous. Mm -hmm. But um, but he's not going to get back into that chamber Mm -hmm. and get shot again. Like Mm -hmm. that's not going to happen. And but DeSantis, who is obviously his successor, or at least unless something you know drastic happens in the next two years, DeSantis certainly looks to be um, set to take that nomination pretty handily. Um, he's a very, very dangerous mm-hmm. man um, if you believe in in you know things like liberal democracy and you know individual citizen human rights, mm-hmm. little, little things like human yeah, rights, yeah. Um, LGBTQ rights, um, you know civil rights, women's rights. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, you know I, he's a. So when I say that Trump is a spent force, that doesn't mean that we are by any stretch of the imagination, you know, out of the woods as a democracy mm-hmm. or as a society. Um, but yes, as you say, I think the the hopefulness from the midterms is that election denialism didn't. The election deniers mostly lost, mm-hmm. and the ones and that when they lost, they conceded. Yeah. Um, uh, which you know, two part process there, which was important, um, and um, and and then with Trump increasingly, and look, I mean, he is in a lot of trouble now mm-hmm. with the special prosecutor just appointed Jack Smith, who's clearly a very very clever lawyer, mm-hmm. and um, and the DOJ is is clearly getting ready to say that they're going to do this. I think Trump will get indicted for the mm-hmm. Mar-a-Lago documents. Um, what happens 
uh, you know, who knows? But um, I think he, I think there is an indictment coming or series of indictments coming. Um, and he, you know, he uh, announced his candidacy mostly to try to weasel out of that again. Uh-huh. So he thought that, you know, they wouldn't maybe they wouldn't prosecute him if he was a candidate yeah. and that he could claim it was a witch hunt and all that stuff. Um, so, yes, there are reasons for some hopefulness. Mm-hmm. Um but as I say, we're still in a lot of trouble. There's still 70 million Americans who think that the election was stolen and, you know, something like 40 million Americans believe in QAnon, um, the, which is insane. Um, I mean, QAnon is insane mm. and the number of Americans yeah, yeah. who believe in it is insane. Um, and um, and so, you know, I think that things like the fact that um, the, the, the hope is with the fact that the next generation is extremely progressive mm. – um, inclusive Mm -hmm. they have no tolerance for any of this kind of bigotry and discrimination but you know they voted at 27 percent in the midterms Mm -hmm. will they turn out higher in 2024 i don't know if they do we win Mm -hmm. it's that simple yeah but um but you know it's um yeah we're still on an we're still on a knife edge and the democrats in my view aren't helping themselves by trying to hang on to a gerontocracy but that's Mm -hmm. maybe another conversation Well, on that note, that is um, all we've got time for. Of course, The Wrath to Come, Gone with the Wind and The Lies America Tales is available from Shakespeare and Company, from our bricks and mortar store, from our online store, from your local indie bookstore in the UK and in the US from... Um, for, it will be available from Bloomsbury. I'm not sure when it's coming out, but soon, okay. hopefully. Okay, well, we'll keep an, we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, you can probably pre-order it now, probably, yeah. I imagine. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 Euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album, Play It Gentle, is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>